Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everyone contains the power within to make a difference. Everybody has the opportunity from God in order to bless life. It's just some people discover that younger than others. Zach Bonner, back when he was six years old, was living in Tampa, Florida. It was 2004 when Hurricane Charlie came through, hitting Florida bringing devastation, leaving so many people without water and power. You know, the call goes out for everyone to step forward and begin bringing water and supplies to help those who are affected. And when Zach saw that request, he stepped to his mom and said, I know we have water. Why don't we give it? She thought that was a great idea. But then Zach went out and he got his little red wagon and he started going down the street knocking on other doors saying, I know you've got to have some water you could give. And so he started collecting water from other people. He then kept collecting and then brought it back to a, a collection spot that was established by a, a local television station. And you can only imagine the reporters when they saw this little kid bringing up his red wagon full of water and supplies. You know, they thought that was very special. But then he went away and it wasn't long and he came back with a second load and then a third load and then a fourth load. And Zach kept doing this day after day for days until finally he'd collected enough supplies to fill 27 truckloads of supplies. It was incredible. He became known to everybody as the boy with the little red wagon. He helped to deliver these supplies and he got to know kids who had lost their homes, had lost everything. And as he got to visiting with them, as he got to know them, it really touched his soul. So much so that when the crisis with a hurricane was over, well, Zach didn't want to stop helping these kids. He'd started studying about them. His mom had helped him. What he learned was, it's estimated there are 1.3 million children in America, who are homeless. 1.3 million. And as Zach began to learn more about them, he said, you know, they are homeless not because they choose to be, but because they are not in control. He wanted to do something to help. So he started making Zach packs. Backpacks full of school supplies and, and food and things like that for kids. And then he started throwing Christmas parties at homeless shelters. No, he just really got into this and started doing more and more, trying to be a blessing to kids who are homeless. Well, then he saw a lady who was out walking for peace. 
and trying to raise awareness, and he thought, that's something I could do. So in 2007, when he was all of now nine years old, he decided to walk from my house to the White House. That was 1,200 miles from Tampa to Washington, D.C. His mom went with him. They would walk along. There was lots of local news coverage. He would stop at homeless shelters all along the way trying to create awareness and create discussions about the homelessness and the problem for children. He was trying to raise money. And sure enough, when he arrived at the White House, he had garnered support from one person named Elton John. And there was a check for $25,000 waiting to help contribute to the project. He came back and kept working on other projects. In order to keep receiving so much money, he had to create his own foundation. It became known as the Little Red Wagon Foundation. He did that when he was seven years old. He kept on working for this issue of homelessness. And in 2010, when he was now 12 years old, he came up with the idea of March Across America. He would walk all the way from Tampa to L.A. And again, all along the way, he would stop at schools, speak to children. He would gather letters to be able to pass on. He would begin throwing parties, all kinds of things to try to raise awareness of homelessness for children. And it wasn't just this is what he was trying to do. He kept saying to the kids, you can do something about this. Whole schools came out and would walk with him for miles. He kept saying, you can do something about this. It's together we can make a difference. He's now 21 years old. He's still doing amazing things. But I want to read you what he had to say. Kids are never too young to make a difference. You are never too old or young to make a difference. Don't let anyone stand in your way. Find something you're passionate about and just do it. To believe that within everyone there is the power to make a difference. That God will give everyone the opportunity to bless life. It doesn't matter how young or how old or how rich or how poor. You are enough. You are enough because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, the 23rd Psalm has got to be one of the top 10 recited scriptures in the entire Bible. Everybody knows the 23rd Psalm. And it probably gets read the most at funerals. And I think it's very appropriate there 
But it's important to understand, we believe King David wrote the 23rd Psalm. He wrote it when he was king of Israel. He is thinking of all that he has done and all the challenges he still faces. And then he writes the 23rd Psalm, and this is a psalm of joy, a psalm of thanksgiving. It's not about being sad. It is a psalm of thanksgiving and joy. And it begins with a declarative statement, the Lord is my shepherd. It's not a statement of I hope the Lord's my shepherd. I pray the Lord's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. A declarative statement. And the whole psalm is all about how God wraps us in His love and His care. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There are many paths around it, Jerusalem that are very steep and very rocky, very dangerous for people and for sheep. Sheep do not see well. It's easy to fall into a, a crevice. It's easy to fall onto a ledge. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know, a shepherd's crook, at the top it has that little crook on top. The whole purpose is that when a sheep falls into a pit or falls onto a ledge, it is used to put under their chest, underneath their arms, to pick them up and to put them back on the path. A rod was a long stick with a big knob on the end of it that could be used to fight off wild animals attacking the sheep. Thy compassion... Thy power, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. David was always facing enemies, all the countries around Israel. But scholars say the sheep analogy here also applies and that a good shepherd went out each spring into the fields to dig up thistles. Thistles where the sheep would go and graze, it would stab into the soft tissue of their nose, their mouth. You dig them up, you burn them, you prepare a table before the sheep. And each night they would bring them into the sheep gate. And during the day grazing, they would sometimes hit their head on rocks. There would be cuts, there would be bruises. And when the shepherd would see that, they would take oil and pour it on the wounds for healing. My head you anoint it with oil. And just as in Israel, as in Africa, in many places, there's a real crisis with water. And so when the sheep came home at night, the shepherd would take a cup, dip it into a pool of water. It was overflowing and the sheep could drink until its thirst was quenched. My cup overflows. Now, I like that analogy. And this morning, we are starting a new sermon series entitled, You Are Enough. And I want us to think about this cup overflowing. Because the understanding that God pours out His Holy Spirit upon us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
It is God's grace being poured out on us to where we don't have to be afraid in the valley of the shadow of death. We are prepared a table in the presence of mine enemies. They anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Sometimes we forget that. Why is there the power within to make a difference? Why are we given an opportunity to bless life? Because the Lord is my shepherd. My cup overflows. You are enough. This morning, when you get ready to leave, we have out on here in tables lots of cups. And on them it says, you are enough. There is one for everybody. They are for free. We invite you to get them and to take them home. I hope you will put it on your kitchen table or take it to your office to be able to drink your coffee out of. And what I'm asking is that each of us through this whole next five weeks start each day by thinking, the Lord is my shepherd. I give thanks. I am grateful. My cup overflows. I am indeed blessed by God's grace. And then to pray, Oh God, use me to make a difference. You are enough. It's what we're going to be looking at during these next five weeks. And what I wanted to do this morning was just kind of to set an overall understanding of what we're going to be looking at and then how we're going to be digging deeper. And there's really just two things that I want to say as we begin today. First of all, never allow yourself to think that anything is impossible. It is not impossible. Why? Because the Lord is your shepherd. Your cup overflows. You are enough. I don't know if some of you are familiar with the name Ben Berenz. Ben Ferenz is a fascinating man. He is a lawyer. He's now 99. And he's someone who goes out and he swims every single day. He does his exercises. His mind is brilliant. He is so sharp. He stands all of five foot tall. And yet he is a giant of a man and a thinker. And when you look at his life, you would say... It should have been impossible. He was born in Romania back in 1920. His mother and father were Jews. They were very poor. And they could look around in Romania and see this is not going well. And yet they tried to find the funds in order to immigrate and leave Romania. And they came to the United States. Came to New York City. And there his father was able to get a job as a janitor in an apartment house. And the family began to assimilate into the United States. Ben tried to go to school when he was eight years old, but the problem was he did not know how to speak English or how to read English. He spoke Yiddish at home. And so the school said, no, no, you can't come. So he had to learn English and begin working on learning how to read and speak it. And when he finally could, they let him come to school. He worked really hard. He was very smart. And by the time he graduated high school, he actually managed to get a scholarship to go to college there in New York City. 
And there he was really interested kind of in pre-law and learning about war crimes. He wrote a paper about it and then he decided to apply to law school and based it around this paper he wrote and he got accepted and got a scholarship to Harvard Law School. So he started going to law school at Harvard and 1941 came along, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And so Ben, right along with all of his other classmates, went down to volunteer to fight in the war. He decided he wanted to be a pilot. He went down to, um, to volunteer to be a pilot and, and they said, young man, your feet will not reach the pedals. At five foot tall, you're not tall enough to be a pilot. So he decided if he couldn't be a pilot, he was going to be a Marine. He went to the Marines and they didn't say anything. They just laughed. They wouldn't let him sign up to be a Marine. So he went back to school, Harvard Law School, for another year, finished his degree. And then he went and signed up in the Army and he became a private. They put him in an artillery battalion and assigned him to Patton's army. He would be a part of the landing there in Normandy. He would fight through some of the most brutal battles across Europe. He would fight in the Battle of the Bulge. But as time went on, Patton was required or asked if he would form a, a small task force of people who had legal backgrounds so that whenever they freed a concentration camp, a group of people would come in and begin to look for evidence of war crimes. Since he had that background in law, he was asked to be a part of that and begin to go in and, and look for evidence of war crimes. What he saw, the inhumanity to man, overwhelmed him. At 99 years old, he can start talking about what he saw and what he did. And it can move him to tears in a moment. You never forget. When the war was over, he was able to come back home, discharged. He never wanted to go back to Germany again. He married his childhood sweetheart. They started a family. And then General Taylor called him and said, Ben, we need you back. We're going to have the Nuremberg War Trials. We need people back here who can help us to look for all this evidence on war crimes. And Ben decided to go. Took his wife. They went back. He was assigned in Berlin. He started going through all these bombed out office buildings that had, had been occupied by the SS and it was one of those grace moments, one of those moments the odds were so against happening. They're going through all these bombed out office buildings trying to look for anything and they come across all these documents from SS officers out in the field documenting all the people who were murdered and sent back as highly classified documents into a pile a file. You see, I remember when I went to the Holocaust Museum, you know, we tend to think of all the people who died in concentration camps. But you know, there were these killing units, the SS, that as the 
German army went along and would overtake a town. Then the SS came immediately behind them into these towns to find every man, woman, and child who was Jewish. They would dig a trench, take them out, and shoot them one by one and bury them in a mass grave. As he began adding up all these documents and all these verified killings, it was more than a million people. They talk about that at the Holocaust Museum. More than a million people were killed out in the fields as the army came along and the SS followed behind them. Ben couldn't believe it. He had the documents to prosecute 22 SS officers who had led this mass murder. He immediately went to General Taylor down to the Nuremberg trials and said, I've got it. We have got to prosecute these people. And the general said, everybody is doing all that they can. Nobody can do any more. We're after the very top echelon of those who worked with Hitler. And Ben became angry and said, but look at what they did. They must be held accountable. And the general said, can you do it? Yes, I can. Ben Ferenz was 27 years old. He had never tried a case in a court of law. His first one. At five foot tall, they had to get a box for him to stand on to speak in the microphone at the Nuremberg trials. He didn't call a single witness. He just went through the evidence that they had prepared themselves, the defendants who were there. Here is what they said they had done. He got 22 convictions. Crimes against humanity. He is the only prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials that is still alive today. The fascinating thing is that he came to the conclusion that many of those who had committed these atrocities, he said, you know, they probably were good people. Just when you start fighting war, when you do what your government tells you to do, it turns you into mass murderers. He's become so outspoken against war. He's helped to create an international criminal court, a court of law that's supposed to apply to all nations. How can we resolve what we, our differences we have through the law and international courts rather than war? He is such a proponent against war. He goes and he meets with young lawyers and what he says to them is, do you want to help me change the world? Never give up. Never give up. I soon will lay down this torch. The hope of the future is with you. The son of Jewish poor immigrants from Romania, at 27 years old, having never conducted a trial in court before, to be the lead prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials? To give a lifetime of trying to push for peace rather than war? 
It sounds impossible. But he would know. The Lord is my shepherd. My cup overflows. You are enough. Secondly, I like something Ben Ferenc says. It takes courage not to be discouraged. You have to be an optimist. Otherwise, you have no hope. And if you lose hope, you don't have the strength to do all that needs to be done. It takes courage not to be discouraged. To have hope to do all the things that need to be done. Where do you and I find our courage? Where do we find our hope that gives us strength to do all the things that we need to do? The Lord is my shepherd. My cup overflows. You are enough. To find the strength to do all that you need to do. This last week, I, I met a wonderful person whose faith enabled them to do all that they needed to do when it seemed so impossible. Her name was Rispa Agogo. As you know, there were a team of five of us who left about 10 days ago from St. Luke's and we traveled to Kenya, Africa. We flew to Nairobi and then from Nairobi we went to Kisumu. And then from Kisumu you kind of went out to the different villages out into the areas. We'd been out for a meeting from one group. It was people where world neighbors had been at work. World Neighbors, as you know, was started by St. Luke's back in 1951 and has been around the world blessing lives in incredible ways for the last 68 years. Well, they've been working there around Kasumu, so we went to go see some of the things that they had been involved in doing to see if we could find a place where St. Luke's could go and invest themselves just like we have in Ulyanovs, Russia, as we do in Honduras, Alaska. Could we find a place in Africa? So we went to the, meet some of the people, and then they told us from a community center, we want you to meet a farmer, a farmer who is truly amazing. Her name was Rispa. We, we went down the main road, and then we pulled off onto a dirt road, and we started heading up this mountain until finally we came to this clearing, and it had this beautiful look out across the valley. Now, this farm is not like a farm that you and I think about in Oklahoma. It doesn't have a large field where everything is plowed nice and straight and all this open land. No, everything there is done by hand. All the planting is done by hand. And there aren't huge expansive fields. You can't do that because it's all done by hand. So we come up to this area, this, this farm in this clearing. Rispa is not there yet. She's on her way. So we have some time just to kind of wander around and look at the farm. And what we see is a chicken coop. And immediately the first thing we realized, it's not with stakes, as we would think of, driven in the ground. They had to use what they had locally. That's tree branches. You drive the tree branches into the ground, and then you can use your chicken wire in order to make a chicken coop to protect them, keep them together. It worked very well. And then we saw the goat pen. She had goats. 
And what she had done was they'd gone out and cut down trees and then cut them long ways to make boards. You couldn't go out and buy boards. No, you just cut them long ways to make a board and make this floor. And then you had all these goats that were um, in their pen where they could feed them and keep them safe. And then they would poop between the boards and create all this manure that then you could shovel out and take out and put on all your crops. Use it as fertilizer. It was very ingenious. Well, we're looking at all the chickens and we're looking at the goats and it actually has a couple cows. And, and then we also know she had her home, which was a modest home, but nicer than most. Most homes would be a 10 by 10, 15 by 15, solid kind of hut with tin roof. There might be a door with a drapery on the front of it, maybe a solid door. There was no electricity. There would be no running water. But she actually had some electricity up at her place, solar electricity. But then we noticed she was building another house beside it. And it was lovely by all standards of any homes we had seen. And it was going to be big enough actually for her family. We started learning something about her story. Rispa was in her 60s. It was back in 1996 that her husband passed away from AIDS. They had five children under 10. And now Rispa was infected. She had to take care of the kids. She was working to try to keep a roof over their heads, some food on their table, but they did not have enough food quite often. They were hungry, but she did all that she could to take care of the family. But over the next 10 years, the virus would grow stronger and stronger. Her health was going down until finally in 2007, she was in bed full time and they knew that she soon was going to die. It was then that world neighbors came and they began working with the government to try to get the, uh, the drugs, the medicines for AIDS and HIV to all of the people. The government provided them for free. They weren't getting to the people who needed them. And she began receiving these drugs and sure enough, it began pushing the virus back into a remission. She started getting stronger. There was World Neighbors who was there to talk about a, a savings and credit program. And they got the women together in the community. Everybody could contribute some money, whatever money they possibly could, build up a bigger pool, and then they could make loans to those different women in the group. She asked for one of the loans. They gave her money to buy some chickens and a few goats. You see, in 2007, women couldn't own cattle there in Kenya. They hadn't been allowed to own property or to, but things were starting to change. But now she got goats, she got some chickens, and she did what other people weren't doing. She built a chicken coop, as they told her. It'll protect them and you can make them healthier. Build this way, this goat pen, and here's how it can help you in many ways. She worked hard and did what she was told, and it began to do so well. She fed her family. In fact, then she had so much, she was able to start selling it. And once she started being able to sell produce and food and the goats and the chickens, suddenly she was making money to take care of her family, own the land. She was this incredible entrepreneur. 
It was Wendy who made the observation, isn't it fascinating, when they finally let women out of the kitchen and they let them be entrepreneurs, how successful Rispa became. And now she was paying men to shovel the manure. She had done incredibly well. Well, as we're learning all about her, we start hearing a motorcycle and coming up the mountain and there in this beautiful yellow dress is Rispa on the back of this motorcycle who suddenly jumps off and comes over and shakes our hands with this firm handshake. She doesn't speak English, only Swahili, but you can tell this life and love in her eyes. And we all gathered around her and she immediately was saying, please come into my home. So we went into her home. There was a single room. It was very nice. We were all starting to sit down when the interpreter said she would like to pray for you. And we had already learned that in Africa, if they were going to pray, you stand. And so we all stood back up and she prayed for us in Swahili. And it wouldn't be proper to translate prayers. So we all just listened to her prayer in Swahili. And I didn't understand what she said, but I knew it was a powerful prayer. She was praying for us. We sat down. I saw her reach out on the coffee table in front of her, this little table, and she picked up her Bible. And she held her Bible as we started to talk and ask about her life. We learned more about her story. We were asked about her family. She had five kids, three girls, two boys. The youngest boy was in college. The older kids, well, one daughter had already graduated from college and finance, worked for Barclays. Another one was graduated and was an accountant. Her oldest son was working on his Ph.D. in engineering. It's amazing what all of these kids were doing. The way she had fed them, the way she had taken care of them, the land she had bought, this farm she had put together. Is incredible. She finally had to run to a doctor's appointment, a checkup. We all stood up and I said, can I pray for you? I said, and quite often in the United States, we hold hands. And so we were all holding hands when she said, I, I wouldn't like to kneel and you pray for me. And so she knelt and we prayed for her. It was such a beautiful moment. And then she stood up and I said, I'd like to take a picture with you if I could. What I'd noticed in her house was there were some wires strung from one wall to the other wall and there were all these greeting cards hanging off these wires. And I thought that was really interesting, unusual, all these greeting cards. And I, I, I said to the translator, what are these for? And he said when her kids were taking national exams, she would always send them cards to encourage them, to tell them she loved them. Every place somewhere had, people had prayed, they always prayed about national exams and their children. People had been praying about these children. She had the cards. She had sent them to her children through the years. And now they had given the cards back to her. She had them hanging there in her ceiling. 
And I had one place I wanted to have my picture taken under two cards. Because one card said, may God bless you. And the other one said, you will make it. Against all odds, she made it. To do the impossible. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. My cup overflows. You are enough. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.